News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. Christina Greer is back. I'm back. Welcome to the country. Thank back. you. Are you running for mayor? Harry Siegel. Larry, I said no. <laughs> I refuse to run for the mayoralty. Join the rest of us in drafting Christina Greer. And joining <laughs> us now, uh, New York needs you. Is uh, it's not it's not for you. It's for us. Joining us now is Andy Newman of the New York Times, who's been on an incredible beat covering work for the paper over about the last eight months. So he's worked himself as a food app delivery guy, and for a few hours as a mechanical Turk. We'll explain what that means if you don't know. And reported on home health aides, canners, and retail workers, producing a pretty incredible run of accounts. You should go and read. You can find all the links at FAQ.NYC about how work works now and sometimes doesn't, and how the uh, modern world is changing it. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Harry. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you. So reading all these stories, one of the things that grabs me are how many workers in this new economy seem to only be getting paid for their productive hours. You know, imagine, I'm imagining shuddering if I, if uh, my bosses could do that. So if I stop to think or read a book or anything else, that's off the clock and it's only the hours I'm actually writing or editing that I'm right. getting paid. And I saw that with the Mechanical Turks when people were talking about their hourly wages with the uh, – when you were working for the, uh, the delivery apps and biking around the city. Yeah, and it's, it's not just when you're pausing to read a book or something. These jobs, because they're piecework, you know, you get paid when there's a job and when there's not a job, you're sitting around waiting for a job and you don't get paid. And if you're the worker and you've set aside your day to, you know, deliver meals for DoorDash or whatever, then that whole chunk of time is time that you think that you should be compensated for. But from the point of view of the company that's sending out the assignments, they only count the time when you're actually doing a job. So if you get a delivery and it takes 10 minutes and then you have to wait 20 minutes for the next delivery you're thinking, what am I going to do with that 20 minutes? I'm sitting around and, you know, meaninglessly surfing on the phone or whatever. But the company says, oh, our delivery guys make $20 an hour because we're only counting the time when they're actually out running around and delivering things. And it's the same way with Mechanical Turk. The workers think about it in terms of like hourly wage, but the people who are creating the work are just saying, this is the task, this is how much you're going to get paid for it. And when you say our delivery guys, as these companies are referring to them, I know when you were doing this, and I think most delivery guys are actually everyone's delivery guys, and they've got five or six apps up at right. a time, or two or three, and they're looking at all the possible jobs and are actually working for everyone simultaneously, in a sense. Yeah, correct. And I think that's maybe more the case in New York, where there are several apps that are very much competing against each other. There's Grubhub slash Seamless, and there's DoorDash, and there's Postmates. And the people who do the work find that if you are running all these apps at once, then your odds of getting a delivery or getting a decent paying delivery are increased. But then you have this like this flow of decisions that you have to make, like, do I take this order, which is going to maybe take me over here, or I don't even know where it's going to take me. So it's a... It, some of them tell you and some of them don't, right? Some of them tell you and some of them don't. And, and it changes from time to time. The The, the apps kind of change their, the way that they run the game fairly frequently. So it's 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 a lot to keep up with. And it was a lot more 
of an intellectual thing than I would have thought just being a delivery guy was. Well, and and also because certain apps don't tell you. Once you click accept, that's when you find out whether or not you're going to go 45 blocks north or just five minutes away. Correct. But what I was fascinated with, Andy, is that, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about the gender components? Because you interviewed both men and women, and some of the ages uh, were surprising to me. They were With the delivery? Old, for the delivery people. They were slightly I don't remember older. actually interviewing any... I thought there was a, what, a woman. I, I did, there, of, there are female delivery people, but I don't think I actually talked to any. Uh-huh. And... Um, Courtney Melton, um, she said she was still trying to figure out. Oh, oh um, yes. Okay, that was one of the follow-up right. stories. Yeah, I, I didn't talk to her. One of our okay. other reporters talked to her. Sorry, I forgot about, I forgot about her. Um, I, it's, I I'm know, assuming it's primarily men. Yeah, it's primarily men. I have surprising. no idea what the breakdown is. Uh-huh. Uh, it's. I would say it's got to be like more than 90% men just because when you see people – Riding around the city with those cube-shaped backpacks uh-huh. on their back. How often do you see a woman riding around? I worked around? for Postmates. I would. I like took a took a Postmates job between Vice and Gawker. <laughs> like, in the city. In or? the city, yeah. And because I just just like, oh, I'll do this. And also, there was this uh, other person I wanted to introduce to that kind of work, and a couple friends of mine. But I just did walking, and oddly enough. A- anecdotally, I don't know anything about the numbers either, but there was a lot of women who just took walking jobs. I don't want to ride a bike, and I was doing it for kind of like extra money um, while I was unemployed, and uh, it-, it was interesting. I could make up to $20 an hour, just, and they don't send you as far. So like a lot of the people that I was encountering were just like, yeah, I'll turn on the app, and this was about three, four years ago. So they'll, they would just turn on the app if they had nothing to particular to, mm-hmm. to do and just kind of like walk and make a little extra money, like 10 to $20 an hour. I mean, this is sort of the upside of the gig economy, right? right? You totally control your time. This is what all the companies say is like the great advantage of doing this work is that if you do only feel like doing this job for half an hour or, or totally at your own convenience, you absolutely have the freedom to do that. It's just that if you're trying to rely on these things as a way to make a living, it's it's much trickier. Well, because, I mean, one of the men you interviewed said, oh, I love it. I'm my own boss. You know, he said, I have a boss, but I'm essentially my own boss, yeah. which can be liberating for some because you can make your own hours. But it does seem like, you know, can you talk to us a lot more about the tipping piece? I remember when it came out in the news and there were lots of people on Twitter saying, you know, I'm going to stop using DoorDash. You know, like I was tipping, I thought I was tipping the guy who brought my food and now right. I realize I'm I'm just tipping the company. Um, and so the way you broke it down, I thought was really helpful for a lot of people who use these services and, and just did not realize their $3 was essentially going towards someone's base salary. Right. Or it, so <laughs> this is the tipping is a complicated thing and after the story came out DoorDash changed their universally vilified tipping policy. There was a big catch though, which is that the way the tipping policy was set up, a lot of the dashers, which is what DoorDash delivery people are called, actually preferred it. And I will now try to explain this yeah. in in less than 3 minutes and Cut me off when, when I get there because it's complicated. It. They're fine. <laughs> so the, the way in, in the old DoorDash system, which DoorDash is now ditched, they would promise you, let's say, $5 to deliver a meal. And if you got tipped $3 in the app, 
DoorDash would pay $2 out of their own pocket, and they would simply grab the $3 that the person was trying to tip you and use that to get you up to $5. If the customer didn't tip at all, then DoorDash would give you the whole $5 out of, out of their pocket. So from the point of view of DoorDash, they are using the customer's tips to subsidize the wages that they pay the delivery people. From the point of view of the customer, it's outrageous mm -hmm. because you think you're giving $3 to the delivery guy and really you're just going to underwrite this $7 billion you mm -hmm. know, company. So how did Dashers feel about this, about losing the wage floor but, but having, having tips coming directly to them as I believe they've committed to now? Right. So, well, so just to, to finish off how the old system worked, one difference between DoorDash and other apps that I worked for like Uber Eats – and Postmates was that, that that delivery fee that they would promise the delivery guy was typically higher. So that same meal that DoorDash tells you you're going to get $5 for, Uber Eats would only pay you $2 for that. So if you're the delivery guy, you're thinking, oh, if I take the DoorDash order, I know I'm going to get $5 even if the customer doesn't tip at all. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the Uber Eats order, you get to keep the whole tip, but you're getting paid less of a base wage. So DoorDash described this process to their dashers as, here, we are going to insulate you against people who don't tip, and we're going to pay you more than the other guys, but we're going to keep the tips in most cases. So there were a lot of delivery people who liked that system because they didn't have to think before they took the order, well, am I going to get tipped or not? They knew they would get Something they also knew they probably weren't going to get much beyond that, but it eliminated a lot of the kind of variability and it and it made their wages more stable. So, in my story, I didn't at that point totally get this. I did mention the fact that DoorDash typically paid me more as a base wage than the other guys, but after the story came out, people customers flipped out and they were like, I can't believe that, you know, my money, I'm trying to tip this poor mm -hmm. struggling delivery guy and I can't believe the, the money's not going to him or her. DoorDash had actually gotten a bunch of flack about that same thing six months before when there was a whole thing about Instacart doing the exact same thing. And at the time, Instacart changed their policy and DoorDash said, no, we're going to stick with this because our dashers really like it. So, after my story came out, there was another round of that whole blowback, and this time it was apparently so heated that DoorDash backed down and said, okay, we're going to change our policy from now on. The customer's tip will definitely go directly to the Dasher, and we're going to change the, the base wage so that overall Dashers will make more money. Um, and then they, over the next few weeks, they rolled out their new system. Their new system is in place. DoorDash says that the Dashers are making, on the average, more money than they did under the old system. They have hired like a, a third-party accounting firm to confirm this, uh -huh. and I think they adjust the wages so that they make sure that um, people are overall making more money. But undoubtedly, there are some people who are making less money, and who knows really because – DoorDash is not particularly transparent, just like all these companies are not going to really let you see their whole complicated payroll and bottom line structure. So the, the, the DoorDash thing was sort of like an exercise in, in unintended consequences. I wrote about what seemed to me like a totally screwed up 
system, people got really mad about it. The company changed it. But meanwhile, the workers, some of them were like, I liked it the way it was. Mm-hmm. Other people were like, no, this is going to be a lot better for us. So I don't know yet uh, whether workers at DoorDash are better off now that that whole system has changed. Right. That was more than three minutes. No, but. no, no. But I mean, <laughs> I think that's really important just because there are these unintended consequences. And what your your stories were essentially saying is that it's not carte blanche. I mean, there's certain writers who think it's a better system this way and others, I'm sure, depending on how many deliveries they do. And what kind of tips they what get. What kind of tips they get, probably what kinds of neighborhoods, you know, right. whether they're in all corporate offices. All that stuff is very variable. Um, residential. I mean, all of that, that changes. I'm curious how this – relates to the restaurant business, which is its own weird can of worms, and you have the uh, tipped minimum wage, which yeah, the, I mean the DoorDash the same way. It's it is the same structure. I don't know too much about the tipped wage, but I know that in New York, you're allowed to pay certain tipped workers less than the minimum wage as long as they make it up in tips. And you're, uh, the amount that you're allowed to pay them that's less than the minimum wage is limited. Like you can only pay them, I forget what it is, $2 or $5. I'm confirming the tip minimum wage right now. Thank you. Thank you, Internet. So it had been that. It's now with the rise in the minimum wage for everyone else to 15 an hour. Uh-huh. It's seven eighty-five to uh, 10 depending on where you are. So I'm sure in the Got city, it. everywhere, it's now 10 Got um, it. So that means that the restaurant – can basically only keep $5 an hour worth of your tips and every, anything you get beyond that in, in theory, is yours. And you have all these class action suits all the time where restaurants pool tips, right. where they then take those pool tips and uh, management takes a cut. Correct. The guys yeah, there's, a lot of abuses, there's a lot of abuses with the tip wage thing. But I mean, what DoorDash's model is, is definitely based on the restaurant tipped wage. And in, in an interesting way, both these involve not having the apparent employer – being the uh, the wage pair, right, where the customer is is making up some of the difference directly, correct, and you're you're facilitating that. Um, so we're recording at a, a this space Alex Lynn has set up, three twenty one Canal with Don't Bury the Weed, uh, that everyone should come and check out. And it's full of all these incredible old newspapers and other strange things. I don't have the word gifts to describe to you, so you just got to come see. But I'm looking at the nine eleven papers, and there's the Post and the Daily News and Newsday, uh, New York Newsday. And they're all tremendously fat papers. And that's an area where you have all of this competition. And it turned out to be, for a minute, really good for workers, uh, for media workers at that point and delivery guys and others. And then at a certain point, a lot of that competition goes away and the tabloids are very thin and sad. And I'm wondering if something parallel might be happening um, around some of these apps where uh, Mechanical Turk is the go-to place. But if I go back to delivery for a minute, that each of them is hoping to be the last App standing that these that the the dashers and others aren't going to be able to choose between five places and at that point suddenly the livings people make drop uh, the rules of engagement get more difficult I think some of this happened with Uber as it uh, pushed others out of the city when it was rising uh, did you see any of that or any concerns about that coming or I mean I, I don't I'm not, I can't forecast how, how these things work I know that there there are some cities like I believe London and uh, maybe Berlin have like almost all the delivery work belongs to one app. And so in New York, delivery guys don't organize because if you're a DoorDash guy and DoorDash changes their pay model and you're not making as much money, you can go work for Postmates or Uber Eats or, or Seamless. In, in places where there is one dominant app, 
those workers have tended to organize more because they have fewer alternatives to, mm-hmm. you know, they can't just switch employers or whatever you want to call them when, when things get difficult. But I don't know. I mean, it is correct that a bunch of different apps all thought they were going to basically take over and monopolize the delivery business, and it hasn't happened yet. In New York, I think Seamless is like by far the biggest. It's like 75 or 80 percent or 70 percent. It's, it's, it's more than half. But in other parts of the country, it's different. It's, it's very variable. So I definitely want to talk about this Mechanical Turks piece. But before then, I mean, I, re- I, I have to have you discuss sort of the home health worker just because that piece to me was so powerful and especially because Thank so you. many, um, not just New Yorkers, but so many people in this country are dealing with this, this very issue. Essentially, you have a loved one who needs round-the-clock care, and especially if they have dementia or Alzheimer's, they definitely need someone who can not only stay with them but is compassionate. Um, but a lot of people haven't set aside a few hundred thousand dollars for this situation. So can you just walk us through that story really briefly? Just because I thought that there were so many racial and gender and immigration components that you put in the story and you just kind of let them sort of sit there and and just kind of marinate, right? Um, because of the gender dynamics of having a male patient or a client, right. a, a female home health aid worker who's making a flat salary, which seems, you know, $160 a day seems pretty impressive until you said, well, actually, it's roughly $10 an hour because she doesn't really get to sleep. Right. Um, and she's an immigrant with her own family. Um, so can you just tell us a bit more about that story? Just because I thought a lot of folks would resonate with it, whether they were on the client side or their right. provider side. So the the reason I uh, decided to to try to write about home health aides is that there is this like exploding need for people to do this kind of work and no one wants to go to a nursing home anymore. Everyone wants to age in place. And if you need help around the clock, people are living longer and longer, even with really bad health problems. They're living longer and longer. So there's this this ever-growing need for people to do this work, which you would think would pull wages up because there's this right. enormous demand for it. But there are all these reasons, a lot of them cultural, why there's kind of like a ceiling on how much people will pay for this stuff. So I learned in reporting the story that the work of home health aides is done almost entirely by women. Most of them in this country are women of color. A lot of them are immigrants. And the ones who are undocumented obviously have that kind of powerlessness that undocumented people have, which is that they feel like if they complain, they're going to get in trouble and get and have to leave the country. But in general, there has been such a long and kind of ugly tradition in this country of devaluing work that's done by women and especially work that's done by women of color that for whatever reason, the demand for this work is not pulling up the wages. And so you have these people who are just performing so many functions for their clients. They're, they're like social workers. They're, you know, the chef. They're uh, trying to be almost like a therapist too. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it's, it's a very emotionally demanding job. It's also physically demanding. You're like, uh, you know, having to turn or move around somebody. Who's, change diapers. And- yeah. And it's, and it's, it's icky. You have to change the diaper of an adult, which is a pretty, you know, difficult thing to do unless you're really used to it and you kind of like that kind of thing. Um, 
it's just extraordinarily difficult and demanding work. And uh, I only interviewed maybe three or four home health aides, including the one who I shadowed. But all of them have this kind of sense of like mission and like almost like a, a, a calling to do this work, to like help someone who is on their way out of this life to really make their, their last years as easeful as possible. And it's, it's just a phenomenally difficult job. And in a way, it's much more important than like a lot of the work that doctors do around mm-hmm. aged people. And yet they're making, you know, minimum wage or sometimes less. less. In New York, there is a law. Um, it's called the 13-hour law where even if you're a 24-hour aide, you only get paid for 13 hours because there is a standing assumption that you're going to get eight uninterrupted hours of sleep and an hour off for lunch, an hour off for breakfast, an hour off for dinner, which sounds great sort of. But in practice, if you have an Alzheimer's patient who awakens several times every night and you have to go deal with them every time they wake up, you're working more than 13 hours a day. You mentioned in the story that some people have care plans that they actually have to be woken and turned every two hours. Yes, correct. Which makes this actually impossible for the the math. There's like a direct conflict between what the medical protocols are for caring for these people and what the wage laws are, at least in the state of New York. I don't know about it elsewhere. And the courts dealt with this for a moment and then and then it got undealt with, is that right, with this uh with this thirteen hour rule? Yeah, I'm not hundred uh, percent recalling what the court ruled, but the state court of appeals, the highest court, heard a case last year about this thirteen hour rule and they ended up ruling <clears throat> that yes, the thirteen hour rule was okay. Um, even though I mean, the, the common comparison is firefighters. A firefighter is paid for a 24-hour shift because they're on call for 24 hours and they could get have to go out to a fire any time of the day or night. Um, but for whatever reason, the court sided with the state labor department um, – and uh, which had created like an emergency order to keep it an going emergency, after a yeah, an emergency order that it. says this 13 hour rule is necessary. And again, this gets into a whole unintended consequences thing. One reason that the state labor department wanted this 13 hour rule to stay in place was that they said that if health aides had to get paid their same hourly wage 24 hours a day, no one would be able to afford it. It would put the home health care agencies out of business, many, many people who pay out of their own pocket for the care for their loved ones wouldn't be able to afford it. So again, it's a, it's a tricky thing. If AIDS had to go up to 24 hours, you know, it, it could be that there would be a lot less work. So so um, for our listeners, this this article that I that stopped me in my tracks, it's called On the Job, 24 Hours a Day, 27 Days a Month uh, by Andy Newman in the New York Times. It was first published September 2nd, 2019. Andy, the sentence you referred to that really just took my breath away, it says, it's a vicious circle. Because these have always been poor-paying jobs, they are seen as lousy, low-skill jobs. And because they are seen as lousy, low-skill jobs, they pay poorly. And so this cycle of in some instances for, for some workers, poverty for, for women who are, are doing this very difficult work because the woman you shadowed said she's part psychologist, part maid, part uh, family therapist, part yeah. everything, um, and she has her own family. 
Okay, so shifting gears. You've had a busy year, by the way, 2019. It was a lot of of fun. So tell us a bit more about Mechanical Turks. Starting with what Uh, are Mechanical Turks? Okay, so here is Mechanical Turks. And this is from your November 15th piece in The Times. I found work on an Amazon website. I made 97 cents an hour. Okay, so first, what is Mechanical Turk? It's a historical reference. There was, in the 18th century, some guy came up with a a, a magical chess-playing machine, and it was this, uh, there was this, like, wooden uh, Turkish guy in a turban and wearing, you know, a robe who was sitting at a chessboard, and it appeared that this machine could play chess. In real life, there was an actual human being buried like under the, the the table that the chessboard sat on and he was moving the pieces around. So mechanical Turk is a word for something that appears to be a machine but is actually powered by humans. Amazon uh, created this, this labor site and they called it me- mechanical Turk because it was working exactly like that. Little tiny tasks that computers have not yet learned how to perform – can be performed by humans to train the computers. Jeff Bezos called it artificial, artificial intelligence. And is this essentially like the precursor for uh, machines taking over, similarly to what the writer said in your last story? Yeah, essentially, I mean, we're doing the job before the computers figure out how to do it? Right. Although uh, some, some economists say that even once computers figure out how to do that job, it'll create other jobs for humans to do. So who knows? But anyway, there, there's a field called crowd work where – People who need little tiny digital tasks done, put them up, post them online and say, this task will take X minutes and will pay you this many cents per task. And Mechanical Turk is one of the oldest ones. It goes all the way back to 2005. It's run by Amazon, but the people who are actually paying you are not Amazon. They're just the creators of these tasks. And give us an example of some tasks. So there are tasks where uh, like – Somebody who's developing an AI program um, wants you to tag a bunch of pictures to say, like, this is a dog and this is a cat, and it's teaching the computer to recognize stuff. There is a lot of work on Mechanical Turk by social science researchers who want to do surveys, and rather than you know, go to the university students and say, hey, we'll pay you $10 to to fill out the survey, they'll put it on Mechanical Turk and say, here's a survey. It'll take 10 minutes. We'll pay you, you know, 30 cents or whatever. And even the New uh, York Times, right, for a few big data Yes, the New York Times uh, had, a, had a project called Project Fields. I, I found this a little bit uh, creepy. I shouldn't say that about my employer. but um, I'll say it. I found it creepy. Um, it was uh, some software that the Times is d- developing. It would match ads pop-up ads or the ads that appear when you're reading the story with the emotions that the story would evoke in the readers. And this would allow the Times to say to its potential advertisers, you'll get this many more clicks because we're going to run your ad next to a story that creates emotions that makes people likely to buy your product. That may be a little bit uh, oversimplifying it. But so when the Times was developing the software. They wanted to. They wanted the data. They wanted to know what kind of emotions people felt when they read a certain story. So they put a, a notice on Mechanical Turk saying, "Read a New York Times story, and we'll pay you." I think it was four cents or five cents or a, I forget what it was. A dollar. It, it was some some wage that was 
reasonably fair by the standards of Mechanical Turk. But it's it's used widely by many different people from many different disciplines. And one common thing with these job stories that uh, I, I did last year, the delivery story, the Mechanical Turk story, one that I did about people who collect bottles and cans, is that there are like tiers of workers where the people who are absolute beginners, which I was when I did these jobs, make absolutely crappy money. And the people who are, who figure out how to do it and are really good actually can make okay money. So I did make 97 cents an hour doing these jobs because when you're a total beginner, uh, all, all you all you have access to are the worst paying mm. jobs. And there, if you do it for a while, you you like – Get this these extensions put on your computer that that allow you to um, to grab the higher paying jobs first. The more tasks you do, the higher your rating gets, and the more high paying tasks you're eligible for. So there are people who make ten or twenty dollars an hour doing mechanical Turk stuff, and a lot of them were very upset that I made mechanical Turk seem like this absolutely miserable paying job but the the statistics show that the average mechanical turk worker including the total beginners like me who do it for a day or two and say the hell with this i can't make any money is like a dollar 77 an hour which in some countries is actually okay and anybody on earth can do this work um if you have a computer and an internet connection and but you you say in the story it's mostly americans actually here about it is mostly americans yeah Mm -hmm. Um, so, so going back for a minute to Dashers, you had this great quote uh, from this older guy, um, Andrew Iran, who's 49 and uh, came from Nigeria and drives for all these places, Caviar and Grubhub and Uber Eats and Relay. And he said this job uh, – I think Chris actually alluded to this before. This job is like working for nobody, he said. It's like having a boss but not having a boss. Um, and then in the Mechanical Turk story, one of the things that really grabbed me was that Amazon is, is taking a cut from each of these things, but they're saying they're making the market. They're not actually the provider. Correct. They won't say if they actually use the service themselves, which, which appears they do a lot. But part of the reason people are making so so little, most of them, until you really become a super pro, is that, that, that there are all these screwed up problems. That there's places that just automatically reject a bunch, you know, have a ten percent rejection rate, and then they just keep your work, or there's no one to complain to, or you complain and, and nobody answers, and you're just like right. BS seven two nine. Where is my money? Or right. you, you, you shorted me sixty cents. Right, exactly. So yeah, they they on Mechanical Turk. There's a distinct lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. You have the, the they're called requesters, the people who create the jobs, and the you don't know the. It's not like it says you're working for you know, the New York Times or whoever. It, it just the requester will just have a name like Josh or RS two seventy nine, and so if. If you don't get paid or if you spend a bunch of time doing the task, they can, they can actually keep the work but reject you and not pay you also. There are, there are a lot of tasks that are kind of poorly constructed so that you go through them and do them and then you go to try to hit the submit thing and there's a, a problem. You know, it's, it's just it's a messy, sloppy thing and there is very little way to get the requesters to do anything about it, you, you, there's a little button that says contact requester 
and you say, I believe that you shorted me 60 cents, which it takes up time. You know, every, every single second kind right. of counts when you're doing, trying to do as many of these little jobs as possible. So how, to what extent are you going to take 10 minutes to complain about 60 cents? Um, but if they decide to just blow you off and not answer, like Amazon's terms of use say that all, all these t- determinations are between you and the requester and the requester's word is final. Um, well, and, and that seems like uh, quite a few people can get taken advantage of just because I could do a task, you could, or the, the machine could say, you know, uh, it wasn't done properly, we're not going to pay you. Right. But who's to say that it wasn't done properly? Right. Maybe well, they're, they're, they're just taking my work and correct. refusing to pay me. So the, the one way that the Turkers, which is what people who do Mechanical Turk, that can guard against this is that there are all these um, sites uh, like Turker created sites for Turkers that review the different requesters and give give somebody five stars if they pay immediately and they have a very high uh, acceptance rate and they'll give you a bad rating. They'll say this guy rejects arbitrarily or this guy didn't pay me. And so if you're smart, you'll look before you accept one of those tasks, you'll look and make sure that the that the requester is somebody who seems honorable. So I'd just love to know your, 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 what you picked up on uh, in, in the course of covering these over the last year and uh, any reflections on, on your own job and career as I'm sure you've had uh, you know, in the course of, of reporting and doing a little of this work. I mean I, I have always felt incredibly grateful to have the job that I do because I really love doing it and the Times is a pretty amazing place to work and certainly getting exposed to the – myriad ways that people can get exploited uh, in the new economy. I am ever more grateful that I have, you know, a fairly secure job in journalism, which is, as you know, an increasingly rare and unusual thing. And God knows there are tons and tons of great journalists who are just scrambling their asses off to just try to make a living. And, uh, you know, I I feel grateful that I have a full-time job. Well, thank you, Andy. Um, A, thank you for your reporting. Um, I was reading some of your stories while I was on the train going to and from my tenure track job. And I definitely just had a moment of reflection just because you, I I think you um, really wrote these, these pieces in a way that respects the work, but also, yeah, but highlighting how it is, it's very difficult work. And this country has always had a way of sort of setting it up such that um, really difficult work just is not honored or respected in a lot of ways. So I really hope our listeners will check out uh, the stories Andy Newman uh, for the New York Times, and that's N-E-W-M-A-N, um, and a series on door dashers and mechanical Turks and obviously the pieces that I resonated with with the home health aid workers. So we, we really appreciate you coming workers. on. Oh, gosh. Well, we're, we have to have you back enough. to talk yeah. about the retail and, workers. And the people who collect bottles and cans. Which yeah. Was, that was one of the most – mind-blowing economies that I kind of ran across. But that's for next time. Okay, next time. You promise you'll come back in 2020? Sure. Andy, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, hopefully we'll be uh, talking again soon. And thank you. Look forward to seeing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. F-A-Q.
Here we go. FAQ NYC is headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. We recorded this week at Don't Bury the Lead, our executive producer Alex Lynn's public art display about local journalism in New York. And that's located at 321 Canal Street all through January. So come check us out anytime between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m., any day but Sunday. And thank you to our episode producer, Adam Kamara. And a special thank you goes to Andy Newman of The New York Times. And remember, if it's whack, it's not the fact. That's from Harry.